Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, we are here with Noreen Masood, and we are going to talk about flatness. Noreen, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I'm Noreen Masood. I'm about to be a lecturer at the University of Bristol. I focus on 20th century literature, both poetry and prose, um, with a particular focus on the earlier part of the century. My first book, forthcoming in 2022, is on aphorism. And I'm working on two books at the moment, one trade and one academic, on flatness, broadly conceived. Brilliant. My first question, what the heck is flatness? So in my work, when I talk about flatness, what I'm interested in is any sort of surface, really, which offers you nothing to look at, but at which you can't stop looking. And I'm interested in the opportunities and crises that this phenomenon offers to us. In the academic book that I'm writing at the moment, I look at flat landscapes and the kind of opportunities for attachment that they offer characters in 20th century novels. And I look at D.H. Lawrence, Willa Cather and Gertrude Stein. So while the focus in flat landscapes and what happens to characters as they look at those landscapes and survey them, what emerges strangely in these authors is a kind of study of unnamed feeling and modes of relationship. And these can include kind of queered relationships without connection, inexplicable attachments, and the erotics of broken memory. And in all cases, what the literature grapples with is the kind of necessary unshareability of these feelings, their failure to make themselves legible. Flat landscapes perform this kind of contradictory combination of inscrutability and clarity. So over and over again, they become the stage or the symbol for these understudied feelings. So what might it mean sort of in and beyond a text to seek relationship without connection? Right. And how and why might texts deliberately set out to make themselves forgettable? And above all, why might writing deliberately make itself unresponsive to an audience? So those are the questions I'm grappling with. It's flatness both literally understood in a landscape and flatness more broadly understood in other kinds of physical surfaces, but also sort of interpersonal surfaces as well in the way that we knock up against each other. 
given the three authors that you're working on, what is the relationship with modernism? And my other question is, will you give us an example? Sure, I'd love to. All three of these authors really are writing at a time when colonization really is being consolidated in North America, in Australia. And so there's a new kind of contact and interest in flat landscapes in the early 20th century. There are various kind of general responses to flat landscapes in the bulk of literature at this time. And they're both really racist. They're both like deeply colonial in their in their ideologies. Either the flat landscape is a space of horror or it's a kind of space of useful but sort of contemptible potential. So either way, it sort of generally speaking resides on the erasure of Indigenous people. But the authors that I look at are interesting because they come in at a bit of an angle to these responses. It's more than just a framing of flat landscapes as tabula rasa or, or horror. They quite unexpectedly, I found, become an arena for dealing with strange forms of attachment. So I start with Winnicott, who talks about the mother as a kind of environment for the child. The, the caregiver holds the child, they bear the child up, they take its weight. And that parental holding environment is a kind of reliable space. And in this reliable space, the child makes a bid for attention, the parent responds, and this teaches the child to attach what we call securely. And I'm interested in how we might flip this round, think about how landscape, which is quite literally our holding environment, the ground that we walk on, how that might hold us or hold us up in ways that sort of come in and out of our consciousness as we move through life. Perhaps in its rises and falls and our emotional responses to those features, landscape might model or stage modes of attachment with and for us. So in other words, landscape might teach us to attach in usual and unusual ways, like a parent or a lover does. And I focus on the unusual ways. If landscapes rise and fall, sort of model secure emotional rhythms of response and counter-response between itself and a viewer, then a flat landscape might model a space in which this attachment goes wrong, a sort of space where it's effectively resistant to viewers. Their feelings might stay flat or inert, neutral, and alternatively, and this is what I focus on really, attachment might be modelled or manifested in, in less immediately legible ways. So a cluster of relevant feelings here might be asexuality, a-relationality, closetedness as a way of life, neurodiversity, trauma, resistance to surveillance, fatigue, and the erotics of forgetting. I can give you an example, of, if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. So... The author I've been thinking about most recently is Willa Cather. Her family moved from Virginia to Nebraska when she was a child in the 1880s. And she describes her first contact with Nebraska in a really interesting way as a kind of, there is horror there, but there's also a kind of like a deja vu. She says that the larks coming up and rising and falling on the prairie reminded her of something, but she couldn't quite figure out what. So I'm interested in that sense of a flat landscape as a space in which memory goes wrong, in which there's a kind of glitch of memory, a glitch of, of memory formation. Freud talks about déjà vu or presque vu, which is the tip of the tongue phenomenon, you know, as, as in, I know this, it's just on the tip of my tongue, but I can't quite get to it. And Cather's describing, I think, something between déjà and presque vu. So Freud describes that kind of memory glitch as an attempt by the ego to incorporate something into itself that isn't part of it. So there's all sorts of interesting things going there about identification and attachment and identity formation on grounds that are known to be invalid, I guess. Basically, I'm interested in strange attachments 
or attachments that don't take a form that we're used to thinking of as good or secure, like healthy attachments. What does it mean to be in a kind of attachment relationship with a space which is predicated on your memory malfunctioning? What does it mean to form sort of broader attachments based on a kind of erotics of forgetting? That is so fascinating. It's this way of kind of hollowing out description and its logocentric power. Mm. My next question is, how do we use flatness? It's a great question. One of the things that flatness does for me in my in my work as a critic of the early 20th century, as well as someone interested in broader theoretical questions, is I find that for authors like D.H. Lawrence, it gives me a new way of reading their less studied work. He's best known for his mountainous landscapes, where, like in the Alps and Women in Love, where, you know, there's a dramatic climax on the mountaintop. Novels like Kangaroo are much less studied. And I think that's a very interesting novel because that's repeatedly portrays a character in a kind of stuck but fascinated relationship with the flat Australian bush. There's a way in which we're trained not to notice flat landscapes, right? When I read something like A Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegorical text about you moving towards sort of Christian contentment, it sort of allegorizes a landscape that the pilgrim moves across. And for a great deal of the journey, they're moving across the plains, Yet those bits are so compacted and undescribed because that's not thought to be interesting. What's interesting is when they reach a landmark or, or an obstacle of some kind. So I think that this hierarchy sort of trains us only to attend to contoured landscapes and to sort of pass over bare landscapes as boring, as not worth paying attention to, as spaces in which nothing happens. And by extension, affectless or strangely manifested affects as spaces that are not worth attending to. But I think a broader and arguably more interesting way that I'm invested in using flatness is as a way of tuning into under-acknowledged, understudied modes of relationship. The project really is a way of thinking about relationship without connection, which reads as, a, I think, a paradox. But I think it is the more that I work on this, the more that it seems to emerge as a way of life which might be survivable for neurodiverse people, for certain queer people, for people who've undergone certain kinds of trauma. Uh, Yeah, I'm interested in how my work on flatness can serve theoretical fields in that respect. I think you began by saying how flatness is not exactly synonymizable with the idea of tabula rasa, Mm -hmm. but it has carried with it an import of colonialist discourse. But you also said that these authors are coming at it angularly. Yes. I'm wondering, is there something redemptive there even in like an author like Lawrence who's definitely guilty of colonialist discourse absolutely guilty of colonialism and racism Cather as well I'm I'm very interested like incredibly banal racist anti-indigenous discourse in some of the essays that she wrote it's an interesting one and I suppose what I'm interested in doing with this work is foregrounding both foregrounding the episodes of incredible racism, but also the kind of the seeds of something different going on at the same time. I'm not interested, I think, in in redeeming Lawrence and Cather. I am interested in mixed feelings, I guess. I am interested in how one can be both, how many authors and people are, are both at the same time. I think one of the challenges of us in the academy, but also us on the left, is to work out how to navigate the kind of unconsciously racist, the people whose ideologies 
are right. a mixture yeah. of what we'd recognize as, I guess, amenable and right. dangerous. I, I don't have a good answer for that yet myself as someone who's directly involved in activism and, you know, and a person on the left. I'm interested in my work in sort of staging how in these authors, both the kind of the horrible racist thing and the actually interesting queer radical thing might be happening at the same time. And right. it's not that one cancels another out, not at all. Yeah. But I think the challenge of the mixed bag is is a really contemporary one and a really important one. On the note of mixed and difficult feelings, let me ask you one final question, which is how will flatness save the world? <laughs> you know, I do actually think flatness will save the world. <laughs> Um, I do. This rarely happens, so thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it comes back to me, to this idea of relationship without connection. Right. And I do think that we pretend to privilege connection in relationship, and it informs the way that we help each other, the way that we give, the way that we perform solidarity. When we make a decision whether or not to help or support a person, organisation or cause, and I think we generally root this decision through our ability to relate to them. Mm-hmm. Do I think they're deserving or do I feel for them or do I sympathise with them? Do I empathise with them? Whatever. And during the pandemic, I became really involved in, in mutual aid here in, in Newcastle and mutual aid in its classic sense. In other words, a political project that is designed against charitable principles. Mm-hmm. In other words, in, in mutual aid, one gives to others regardless of whether one views them as deserving or can relate to them or likes them. So what is in question is no longer the other person. And in that sense, it can seem shocking or detached or callous because your connection to them, your feelings about them don't matter at all. The only thing in question is one's own capacity to supply what is requested. So you no longer ask, does this person deserve it? Do I want to give it to them? Do I like them? You simply ask, do I have the thing they're asking for? Do I have the time? Do I have the energy? Do I have the money? And is that surplus to me? And if it's surplus... You give it. That's the only mm. criterion. So in that sense, for me, and I, I should say this is very much my personal thinking about how I relate to mutual aid, and it's, I, I don't at all claim to speak for anyone else. But in that sense, I think mutual aid describes a mode of relationship in which a kind of indifference to the other person or a reluctance to build intimacy with them is the driver for socialist political change. And again, it, it's not a definition... I'm sure that many people will agree with, but it seems to me actually one of the most powerful forces within mutual aid, as well as the thing that differentiates it most powerfully from other forms of social action, like like charities. I think this is the potential to change the world, because I think a lot about how those who are most in need are often those whom people who have, people who have time or money, money or energy, can find the most difficult to empathise with because having is associated with whiteness, it's associated with the patriarchy, it's associated with class privilege. And there may be language barriers involved, there may be cultural differences, which whiteness reads as rude or selfish or entitled. There might be behaviour that's marked by trauma and poverty and the trauma of poverty. I think broadly speaking, suffering makes people harder to like and to empathise with. So the charitable mindset, the one which roots giving through feeling or connection or intimacy ends up giving the most support to those who are less in need of it, to those who've still got the bandwidth to perform likability and patience and legibility and consistency and reasonableness to white middle-class standards. Right. But I think when we reroute away from empathy and sympathy 
and instead through a kind of enabling and indifference to how we feel about others, we're better able to serve those whom suffering has made, quote unquote, unlikable. And we foster a culture which is truly inclusive of difference because we'll never be able to feel for, understand everyone. And when we make that the criterion of help or inclusion, we end up excluding. And as a corollary, we believe testimony even when we can't understand or empathize with it. Once you take empathy out of the equation, it can help maximize returns in a way, I guess. Yeah. And I don't mean it's not the sort of 80,000 hours or giving what you can model of against altruism, giving for good or whatever it is. It's not about coldly deciding where your money can make the most kind of quantifiable difference. That's not at all what I'm what I'm interested in. I'm interested actually in in something quite removed from that sort of analytical perspective, which only asks the question, do I have it and can I spare it? And which curtails all other questions in order to help in our communities. I think this is a good point to end on because it gives a call to the future. Sure. Thank you, Noreen, for coming to High Theory and talking to us about flatness. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.